Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all to the last episode of the Trent Affair. And in the previous episode we learned how the British ultimatum was received in Washington on the 23rd of December. Ambassador Lyons was under strict instructions to press for British satisfaction, but he was to do so politely not menacingly. Neither the American Secretary of State William Seward nor Abraham Lincoln would have been comforted by the terms of Britain's ultimatum, which demanded an apology and the release of the imprisoned commissioners above all. As the third week of December 1861 wore on, the British awaited news of what the United States would say, and the Americans were faced with a stark choice. Would it be peace, or would it be war? No amount of dithering, or distracting, or debating on matters of international law would be sufficient to bluff Britain into accepting the unacceptable. We will recall at the end of the last episode that Earl Russell wanted a plain yes or a plain no to the ultimatum's terms. In the event that the answer given was the latter, a no, Britain was prepared, as we have seen, to engage in the unthinkable, a third Anglo-American war. In this episode, we bring the relevant strands together of this incredible story. A story which I've really enjoyed bringing to you all, and I hope you've enjoyed hearing it too. And I hope getting a foretaste of national honour gives you some kind of hint into what I'm doing for my PhD. There'll certainly be more of this to come in the future. If you'd like to listen to all five of these episodes ad-free, then yeah, go over to Patreon. But if you'd like to listen to all five of them stuck together without any intros or outros, just as like this big, wonderful, delicious chunk of audio that you never realised you needed, then that's on Patreon too. Would you believe it? The Americans decided to meet on Christmas Day of all days to discuss the British ultimatum, and happy Christmas to them 160 years ago. But with that in mind, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you, my lovely history friends and patrons, and now, let's return to that weighted meeting, at this time, 160 years ago. The fateful decision for war or peace with Britain would be made by the government during a tense meeting of American ministers on Christmas Day 1861. From the moment the meeting began, the atmosphere was gloomy, but it only became worse. Seward set the tone by passing around copies of Earl Russell's ultimatum. 
Even as he continued to update those present on the situation, though, he came to realise that his colleagues were in a quite defiant mood. The majority would not agree to give up commissioners Mason and Slidell and endure the blow to national pride which would follow. Their strength was greatly shaken, we can imagine, by Charles Sumner's accounts from London, recorded through the eyes of John Bright. John Bright had made it plain to Sumner that The unfavourable symptom is the war preparations of the government and the sending of troops to Canada and the fervour shown to the excitement which so generally precedes war. This convinces us either that the government believes you intend war with England or that, itself, it intends war with you. Charles Sumner, who, let's not forget, was the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, then quoted Richard Cobden, a liberal radical and John Bright's political ally in Britain, who had added to these ominous sentiments, saying that We in England have already a fleet surpassing in destructive force any naval armament the world ever saw. This force has been got up under false pretenses. France was the pretense, and now we have plenty of people who would be content to see this fleet turned against you. Charles Sumner's position was that a middle ground between capitulation and defiance should be adhered to. In his view, this meant arbitration whereby a neutral power or group of powers might adjudicate and determine right from wrong in the Trent dispute. In the arena of arbitration, it was believed, national honour would not be snubbed, as the case could be made in a legal and dispassionate manner, or so it was believed. Sumner also hoped no one would mistake his solution for mad resistance. As his contacts with Bright and Cobden had shown, Britain was ready, willing and able to use force. Lord Lyons had been courteous, but there could be no doubt that the British ambassador meant everything he said, and his masters in London were genuine. So it was arbitration or capitulation. War should not even make it onto the list of options, for it would have the effect of liberating the Confederacy, bringing the rebels into a free trade agreement with Britain, and making the whole North American continent into a manufacturing dependency of England, according to Sumner. Yet Sumner's arbitration option loses much of its steam in retrospect. In time, France, Prussia and Austria would all make their position on the Trent Affair plainly known. This established a painful fact for the Americans. They were even more alone in the world than initially expected. With the possible exception of France, no European power longed for a disruptive conflict in North America, which they might take advantage of. This was not the revolutionary war period of the 1770s, where Britain's quest to quell the rebellion of its American colonies was undermined by having to fight a simultaneous war against the French, the Spanish and the Dutch all at the same time. Ninety years later, the prospects for international arbitration, let alone international support, were far from rosy for the Americans. But this was a lesson that would take a few more days to register. First, Seward had to face the French music. As they sat together on their Christmas Day meeting, the proceedings were interrupted by the delivery of France's official answer to the Trent Affair. The letter, written to Ambassador Mercier from Paris on the 3rd of December, opened with a declaration that The arrest of Messrs Mason and Slidell on board the English packet Trent by an American cruiser has caused in France, if not the same feeling as in England, at any rate, the utmost astonishment and no little sensation. The French Foreign Secretary then elaborated that 
The desire to aid in preventing a conflict, which is perhaps imminent between two powers, for both of whom it entertains the same friendly sentiments, and the duty to maintain certain principles essential to the security of neutrals in order to protect from violation the rights of its own flag, have convinced it after careful reflection that it could not remain wholly silent under these circumstances. Nor did the United States expect the French Foreign Secretary to have remained wholly silent. Negotiation with the French, as we have seen, was one plank in the strategy of both Seward and others when devising a path out of the crisis, one free from humiliation. But the French Foreign Secretary made matters clear for the Americans. Not only was there no precedent for what the United States had done in considering two men as contraband of war and then seizing them, but this very behaviour of boarding a neutral vessel and hauling off its human cargo was exactly what the Americans had protested so vehemently against in the past. In this, the French secretary noted, the United States and France saw eye to eye, but if the Americans now wanted to change the script and argue for their rights in this case, then that would set a precedent which France could not but abhor and fear the implications of into the future. The French secretary continued to make his point plain, saying, Not wishing to enter into a more exhaustive discussion of the questions raised by the capture of Messrs. Mason and Slidell, I have, I believe, said enough to show that the Washington cabinet cannot, without infringing principles, which it is to the interest of all neutral powers to have respected, or without appearing to act contrary to its own conduct up to the present time, approve the action of the commanding officer of the San Jacinto. Such being the case, there should not, in our opinion, be any hesitation on the part of the Washington cabinet in determining the course to follow. Lord Lyons is already instructed to present the demands for satisfaction which the English government is obliged to formulate, namely the immediate release of the individuals taken from the Trent and explanations disavowing the act in question as an offence to the British flag. The federal government will be inspired by a just and lofty sentiment in complying with these demands. But what if the United States decided to push the issue or to complicate the picture by attempting to drive some sort of wedge between the Anglo-French alliance? Well, this would be a mistake, the French secretary warned, and one which the French would take to heart, as his letter concluded. It would be vain to seek for any purpose or object in risking a break with Great Britain by adopting a different attitude. As for us, who would see in such a course a deplorable complication in all respects of the difficulties with which the Washington cabinet already has to struggle, and a precedent calculated seriously to disquiet all the powers remaining outside of the present dispute, we consider it on our part an act of loyal friendship to the Washington government in the present circumstances, not to leave it ignorant of our point of view. Although it is unlikely that those present at the Christmas Day meeting read this letter in full, it was possible to get the gist of it just by scanning the first few sentences. From its tone alone, the French Foreign Secretary had plainly ruled out any solution which might present the American behaviour as lawful, and by so doing, France ruled itself out as a potential mediator. This may have swayed Seward and convinced him that arbitration was a lost cause. At any rate, the United States was rapidly running out of sympathetic ears in Europe, and France was not the only nation to make its position clear. As America's foremost statesmen met on Christmas Day, many, many miles away in Berlin, the Prussian Foreign Minister Count Bernsdorf was writing to the Prussian Ambassador in Washington, 
Friedrich von Geralt. Much like his European peers, Count Bernstorff in Berlin was unimpressed with the American act, and he wanted Britain to see that she would have Prussia's firm support in the matter. As Bernstorff exclaimed, The maritime operations undertaken by President Lincoln against the southern seceding states could not, from their very commencement, but fill the king's government with apprehensions, lest they should result in possible prejudice to the legitimate interests of neutral powers. This was in reference to the blockade of Confederate ports, but the Trent incident was something of a wake-up call for the Prussians, who were anxious to defend the trade rights of neutral states. As Bernsdorf continued, This occurrence of the Trent Affair, as you can well imagine, has produced in England and throughout Europe the most profound sensation, and thrown not cabinets only, but also public opinion, into a state of the most excited expectation. For, although at present it is England only which is immediately concerned in the matter, yet on the other hand, it is one of the most important and universally recognised rights of the neutral flag, which has been called into question. The Prussian foreign minister was eager to underline his wish not to become enmeshed with the legal wranglings then underway in Washington. Perhaps he had gotten a whiff of Charles Sumner's vision for arbitration, or Seward's intention to reopen the entire question of a belligerent's legal rights. Such debates were of no interest to Count Bernsdorf. What he wished was to communicate Prussia's position, and to the dismay of the United States, Berlin was, like the French, wholly on Britain's side. As Bernsdorf continued, I need not here enter into a discussion of the legal side of the question. Public opinion in Europe has, with singular unanimity, pronounced in the most positive manner for the injured party. As far as we are concerned, we have hitherto abstained from expressing ourselves to you upon the subject, because in the absence of any reliable information, we were in doubt as to whether the captain of the San Jacinto and the course taken by him had been acting under orders from his government or not. Even now we prefer to assume that the latter was the case. Should the former supposition, however, turn out to be the correct one, we should consider ourselves under the necessity of attributing greater importance to the occurrence, and to our great regret we should find ourselves constrained to see in it not an isolated fact, but a public menace offered to the existing rights of all neutrals. Interestingly, the Prussian foreign minister insisted that he didn't want an Anglo-American war. Instead, he wanted to be an instrument of peace between the two parties, as his letter concluded. We should reckon ourselves fortunate if we could in this way succeed in facilitating the peaceful solution of a conflict from which the greatest dangers might arise. It is possible, however, that the President has already taken his decision and announced it. Whatever this decision may be, the King's government, when they reflect upon the uninterrupted relations of friendship and amity which have existed between Prussia and the United States ever since the latter were founded, will derive satisfaction from the thought of having laid with the most unreserved candour their views of this occurrence before the Cabinet of Washington and expressed the wishes which they entertain in connection with it. Prussia's reluctance to stand by while a third Anglo-American war broke out and Count Bernstorff's belief that Prussia stood on Britain's side might strike us as somewhat odd. Was the Prussian king not as opportunistic as the French emperor? In fact, he was not. King William of Prussia was a dyed-in-the-wool conservative. This would change in time thanks to the aggressive prodding from a firebrand chancellor, but the year before Bismarck's appointment as chancellor in 1861, King William of Prussia desired peace. 
Prussia also had very different interests to those of the French. Where Napoleon III may have wished for an opportunity to strike into Mexico or make the most of a new American war, the Prussians were distracted by matters closer to home in the rapidly developing German sphere. Specifically, the Prussian government was concerned with the so-called German question, or the rivalry between Prussia and Austria to control the German states. This rivalry had developed since the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars, and had been nourished by Napoleon's decision to bring the Holy Roman Empire to a sudden end. This also brought the Habsburg right to control the empire's German states to an end, and it severed the links of tradition, law and custom which Austria enjoyed. What gave Vienna the right to direct and control Germany's future, some may have asked, when it already had one foot in the Balkans. Would a more thoroughly German power not be better suited to lead all Germans into a bright new future? Yet, while the two great German powers might have viewed their relationship in Germany with trepidation, on the issue of the Trent Affair, Vienna and Berlin were on the same page. We know this because we have a letter written by Austrian Foreign Minister Count Reckberg to Vienna's ambassador to the United States, Johann von Hulsmann, on the 18th of December. The letter began by expressing profound shock at the Trent Affair, and then seemed to adhere very similarly to the Prussian script. Since this Austrian letter is dated before that of the Prussian, it is possible that the two governments coordinated their response so that a German wall of opposition to the American Act would be presented. It does read quite similarly to the Prussian letter, but I'm going to give you some extracts from it anyway, because I think you'll appreciate them. The Austrian Foreign Secretary Count Reckberg wrote, It is not our intention to enter into an examination of the question of law, and yet we cannot disregard the fact that according to the concepts of international law which have been adopted by all powers, and which the American government itself has frequently followed as rules of conduct, England could scarcely refrain in the present case from protesting against the offence committed against its flag and from asking for just reparation. It seems to us, moreover, that the demands formulated to this end by the Cabinet of St. James contain nothing to offend the Washington Cabinet, and that the latter will find it possible to perform an equitable and reasonable act without the slightest loss of dignity. Much like the Prussian message, the Austrian desire is expressed that War should not break out, since Vienna enjoys favourable relations with both English-speaking countries. Again, similar to the Prussian position, Austria lacked any real dog in this fight, and was concerned more with German matters. An opportunity to intervene in a war-torn America was not a prospect that appealed to Vienna's conservative ministry, which was, predictably, more interested with the progress of cementing its position atop the German food chain. An Anglo-American war would simply be a needless distraction and a potentially expensive interruption of world trade. As Count Reckberg concluded, By taking counsel of the rules governing international relations, as well as of considerations of an enlightened policy, rather than by seeking guidance from manifestations caused by an overexcitement of national feeling, the government of the United States will, we are pleased to hope, consider the matter with the calm mind that the gravity of the case requires, and will see fit to decide upon a course which, by keeping unbroken the relations between the two great states, for both of which Austria entertains an equal friendship, will be calculated to prevent the serious disturbances which the eventuality of a war could not fail to bring on, both with respect to each of the contending parties and with respect to the affairs of the world at large. 
with the French, Austrians and Prussians all making it clear that they favoured Britain's position in the Trent Affair, this hardly boded well for Charles Sumner's efforts to seek foreign arbitration. Not one of these major European powers could be described as neutral, so it could be assumed that they would support Britain in the dispute. Had these letters reached Lincoln's administration during their deliberations, the two German ones at least, it is possible they may have influenced Charles Sumner to withdraw his plans. Due to their late dating, though, it's likely these indicators of German opinion didn't arrive in Washington until the middle of January 1862, by which time the world had moved on. Only the French letter reached the Christmas Day gathering of the American government in time, yet even its impact was considerable. While arbitration was the policy for the moment, this spirit of resistance to Britain's straightforward demands would never be allowed to mutate into full-blown military resistance and war. Lincoln's Attorney General perhaps put the mood best when he declared, I urged that to go to war with England is to abandon all hope of suppressing the rebellion. The maritime supremacy of Britain would sweep us from the southern waters. Our trade would be utterly ruined and our treasury bankrupt. In short, we must not, he capitalised those two words by the way, have war with England. There was great reluctance on the part of some of the members of cabinet and even the president himself to acknowledge these obvious truths. The meeting had revealed the differences between Seward, who envisioned surrendering the commissioners, but through a smokescreen of diplomatic language to hide the essence of the surrender, and Charles Sumner, who favoured arbitration of the dispute by a foreign power. Considering the gravity of the issues at stake, nothing less than Anglo-American peace, it was determined to reconvene the meeting again on the 26th of December, when everyone had had their Christmas dinner. Yet, just as it was necessary to put steel into those that wished to capitulate to Britain, it was also essential to dampen down the more belligerent rhetoric which might appear in the Senate. As leave for Christmas had been cancelled in light of the crisis, Senators continued to debate the matter. When one New Hampshire firebrand declared the surrender of the commissioners to be at odds with American national honour, which was itself well worth fighting for, Sumner publicly rebuked him. The issue was in the careful hands of the administration, Sumner said, and it would be resolved in an honourable manner. This response won Sumner many plaudits. In the meantime, while Sumner distinguished himself in the Senate, Secretary of State Seward lobbied his colleagues tirelessly over Christmas evening to reach consensus for his policy, which would leave Sumner out in the cold. Initially, it seemed that Lincoln would favour Sumner's arbitration idea. Sumner even left the Christmas Day meeting, cheered up that the president appeared to be on his side. Yet, when William Seward presented President Lincoln with a 26-page report of his position, including its strengths in framing the debate over international law, President Lincoln appears to have become convinced that his Secretary of State's plan was the better one. Seward was further empowered when Sumner's duties prevented him from attending that 26th of December meeting, which granted him greater freedom and room to persuade his colleagues to unite in his policy line. During this meeting, Seward waited for Lincoln to speak his piece and give his assent to Sumner's policy, but the president did not speak, and in the absence of any dissenting voices, Seward's policy carried the day. Perhaps out of concern for Sumner's feelings, Sumner wasn't told of the dramatic change in the government's mood. Remarkably, in the evening of the 27th of December, during a dinner hosted by William Howard Russell, the Times' Washington correspondent, that journalist 
was assured by Sumner that the Trent Affair was a matter for mediation. Neither Russell nor Charles Sumner were yet aware that the government had since been converted to another course. It was only the following day on the 28th of December when William Howard Russell's enjoyment of his morning paper was interrupted by the news that the commissioners would be given up by the Americans after all, that the penny dropped. What a collapse, the journalist remarked. Charles Sumner must have been left even more dumbfounded. But he would have to hold his tongue. Sumner had already booked himself into a dinner with Seward and others on the evening of the 28th of December. We can assume that the sense of betrayal was still raw because, while there, Sumner avoided having any meaningful discourse with the Secretary of State. When the festivities were brought to an end, Seward urged his guests to join him in his study. There, Sumner joined with Seward and a few others, who were all forced to sit and listen to every word of the Secretary of State's 26-page report as Seward read its contents verbatim to his audience. The message was thus clear. This was the policy of the government now, not arbitration. Charles Sumner didn't protest as Seward's report was approved. This document was to form the official answer to Britain's ultimatum, and it was presented to Lord Lyons, who promptly sent it back to London with the mail packet of the 1st of January. But what did the letter contain? Well, really, it was a remarkable exercise in moral and legal acrobatics, designed on the one hand to justify the surrender of the commissioners, which would pacify the British, and to essentially absolve the United States of responsibility, which would appease domestic audiences. The domestic audience would be able to read the letter even before the British did. The secretary's words were, after all, written for Americans. To excuse the surrender of Mason and Slidell, Seward alluded to the waning proportions of the Confederate rebellion, and he insisted that, In coming to my conclusion, that is, to release the commissioners, I have not forgotten that if the safety of this union required the detention of the captured persons, it would be the right and duty of this government to detain them. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This was a useful claim to the effect that the United States did not need to hold those commissioners since the rebellion was nearly dead. It was, of course, inaccurate, but audiences in late 1861 would have certainly been roused by such confidence. To northern readers, indeed, unfamiliar with the full measure of the legal argument, Seward's letter was a source of great pride and joy. Not only would an Anglo-American war be avoided, but so would the abject humiliation of the United States. It was a masterful production, so said New York's commercial advertiser, while the New York world lamented that, For the first time since we became a nation, the bitter cup of humiliation is presented to our lips. Such a lamentation was not wholly negative, however. There was a sense that the scales had fallen from American eyes during this crisis. The United States had come of age and had witnessed firsthand how opportunistic and ruthless the European powers could be. Any latent sympathies with the mother country of Britain must be tempered with the clear British intention to destroy American democracy at a moment of major crisis. Such intentions should not be forgotten, even though the United States, like the British, each accepted the primacy of national honour and understood the importance of defending it. An editorial in the New York Daily Times captured the essence of the crisis. The ostentatious and reiterated protestations of neutrality which reach us from over the water do not deceive even the utterers. Hereditary aristocracy yearns towards hereditary slavery and plans its rescue from impending ruin. If one pretext for interference will not serve, another will be trumped up. The crisis in Anglo-American relations might be over for now, but this was only a temporary fix. Charles Sumner also subscribed to this view. The chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee described the settlement merely as a truce only, and he assured Richard Cobden back in London that he was as ready as ever to work alongside Seward, despite the two having very different views on how to solve the Trent crisis. Sumner acknowledged Seward's supremacy and sought only to serve his country in its moment of peril, but he was not quite ready to drop the issue of the Trent just yet. This slight resentment was likely enhanced and encouraged by the fact that not all contemporaries were so impressed by Seward's efforts, and that many tended to correspond with Sumner to explain why. Hamilton Fish, later to succeed, Seward as Secretary of State, wrote to Sumner in an acidic tone, insisting that the Secretary's letter was not the comforting coup which many seemed to believe. Fish wrote, In style, the letter is verbose and egotistical, in argument flimsy, and in its conception and general scope, it is an abandonment of the high position we have occupied as a nation upon a great principle. We are humbled and disgraced, not by the act of the surrender of four of our own citizens, but by the manner in which it has been done, and the absence of a sound principle upon which to rest and justify it. We might and should have turned the affair vastly to our credit and advantage. It has been made the means of our humiliation. 
Seward's attempt in his letter to cast Mason and Sadell as war contraband was insincere, unprecedented and unjustifiable. The Secretary's face-saving act of pretending that the surrender of the commissioners was inconsequential, since the rebellion was close to crushed, also did not fool those that knew better. The Secretary's curious contention that by consenting to British terms, the British were now conceding American arguments from generations before, also held little water. The resolution of the crisis didn't represent a British acknowledgement of the American legal position. But Seward was fortunate in that, however the domestic audience reacted, the British proved easier customers. Nine days after the mail packet had been sent to London, Seward's letter was in the hands of Palmerston's administration. This was the great acid test. Would the British be satisfied with Seward's quasi-legal argument, since whatever the Secretary claimed, he had at least released Mason and Slidell? Fortunately for the United States, both Palmerston and Earl Russell proved to be easily pleased. The Cabinet, wrote Palmerston to the Queen on the 9th of January 1862, had read to it Mr. Seward's long note announcing the determination of the federal government to release Messrs. Slidell and Mason, and the Cabinet considered what answer it would be proper to give. Palmerston was right, it certainly was long. We imagine the Cabinet was less than pleased when they learned that the Secretary had spared little ink or paper in his 26-page response. But the contents of the reply did not cause alarm, which was what mattered. Seward's legal acrobatics were noted, but these could be examined by the country's law officers, the Prime Minister explained, and Palmerston added, In the meantime, Earl Russell will prepare a dispatch to Lord Lyons, accepting the release of the prisoners, and the declaration in Mr. Seward's note that Captain Wilkes acted without any orders or authority as a full satisfaction of the demands of the British government. But he will add that there are many doctrines laid down in Mr. Seward's note to which Your Majesty's government cannot assent, but upon which observations will, on another occasion, be sent. In this, we see traces of the late Prince Consort. We will recall that Prince Albert had suggested that the Americans disown Wilkes, which would provide a face-saving way to solve the crisis. Considering the late Albert's role in mollifying the initial ultimatum sent to Washington, it was not surprising that the Prince Consort wasn't far from the grieving Queen Victoria's mind in her reply. She cannot but look on this peaceful issue of the American quarrel as much owing to her beloved Prince, who wrote the observations upon the draft to Lord Lyons, which Lord Palmerston so entirely concurred in. It was the last thing he ever wrote. Evidently, it was of great comfort for the widowed Queen to see the Anglo-American peace as Albert's legacy. That same day, the Queen wrote to the Foreign Secretary, Earl Russell, and confirmed this view. She thinks, with satisfaction, that the slight alterations in the draft to Lord Lyons, which the Queen suggested, and which was her precious husband's last work, which rendered it more easy for the American government to comply with our request, have helped in bringing about this peaceful result, which she knows her dear angel much wished for. And yet, this Anglo-American peace was by no means guaranteed. Now that the first full calendar year of the Civil War dawned, the implications for foreign intervention and opportunism remained serious. What was to prevent another Anglo-American confrontation at sea from escalating into a crisis more intense even than the Trent? Could it be guaranteed 
that the United States would capitulate a second time? Could Lincoln's administration afford to give in to the British again? Would the outraged mob, weary of a war on home soil, oust Lincoln in favour of a government which would make war on the British? In the event of another crisis, Prince Albert wouldn't be there to soothe the language. The British and Americans would be on their own. Amidst a cloud of angst which hovered over Washington in anticipation of the British reply, Sumner stepped forward into this situation and he delivered a speech before a packed Congress on the 9th of January. Without mentioning Secretary Seward directly, Sumner disagreed publicly with many of the Secretary's conclusions, particularly those concerning contraband and international law. Reference was made to the British tactic of impressment, which was compared to Wilkes's act. Sumner then concluded, The seizure of the rebel emissaries on board a neutral ship cannot be justified according to our best American precedents and practice. There seems to be no single point where the seizure is not questionable, unless we choose to invoke British precedents and practice, which beyond doubt led Captain Wilkes into the mistake which he committed. In this surrender, if such it may be called, our government does not even stoop to conquer. It simply lifts itself to the height of its own original principles. If Great Britain has gained the custody of two rebels, the United States have secured the triumph of their principles. Americans applauded Charles Sumner's scholarly position and appreciated the additional legal context which the Senate Foreign Relations Committee chair had added to the incident. But British readers were less impressed. Indeed, Sumner's comments arguably dragged the controversy out, so that by the 25th of January 1862, the Times could remark, It is impossible to read such performances as the great speech of Honourable Charles Sumner without drawing a gloomy augury for the future of a nation among whom such a man can occupy a chief place. But now, whether we turn to the puerile absurdities of President Lincoln's message or to the confused and transparent sophistry of Mr. Seward's dispatch or to the feeble and illogical malice of Mr. Sumner's oration, we see nothing on every side but a melancholy spectacle of impotent violence and furious incapacity. In London, American ambassador Charles Francis Adams lamented that Sumner's speech has cost him favour here. No paper has ventured to print it. Historians tend to believe that this negative reaction to Sumner's heartfelt position helps to explain that American's trend towards an anti-British position in later years. This would culminate in the tough line that Sumner held during the later controversy over the Alabama claims. Yet another episode in Anglo-American legal wrangling which poisoned relations between the two countries for another generation. Secretary Seward, on the other hand, improved his image in Britain, and both Lyons and Russell moved on from the old narrative of Seward as a warmonger. Palmerston's administration was evidently willing to assume the best interpretation of Seward's letter, and while, as the Prime Minister explained to the Queen, he took issue with the Secretary's legal position, the main thing was that Seward had given up the commissioners. This was the crux of what the British had wanted, and could be pointed to as proof that the British lion's roar had done its work. In a January 1862 issue of Punch, the Colonel John Bull was depicted aiming his rifle at the American raccoon, which bore Lincoln's face, of course it did, who hid in a tree. Are you in earnest, Colonel? the American raccoon asked. I am, Colonel Bull replied. Don't fire, the American raccoon meekly urged. 
I'll come down. And come down the Americans had. As we've seen, in the mind of Lincoln's administration, there was absolutely no room for allowing the crisis to escalate into war. But not all British contemporaries were pleased either with Seward's tone or with the somewhat limp resolution of such a pressing crisis. Critics noted that Seward's letter contained no word of apology for the fiasco, and no real sense of remorse or regret for causing such damage to Anglo-American relations. Meanwhile, the blockade, which was much criticised by cotton-producing segments of Britain, threatened to be a running sore in Anglo-American relations. But the issues also went deeper than this. A yawning psychological gulf appeared to separate the two peoples, claimed the historian David Paul Crook, who then added, Englishmen, in being self-righteous about the fairness of their nation's neutrality, failed to appreciate the mentality of a people in arms and under ordeal. The North, with over half a million men in the army, divided politically and plagued by complex problems of international finance and administration, longed for international sympathy. It got, it seemed, distrust and chill neutrality from Britain and France. And Charles Sumner would underline this idea. It is hard, Sumner complained, that with complications such as history has scarcely ever recorded, our positions should be embarrassed by foreign nations. The Senate sent up a truly remarkable prayer on the 30th of December, 1861 session, requesting God's aid. In this hour of our trial, when domestic treason stabs at the nation's heart and foreign arrogance is emboldened to defeat the public justice of the world. Did foreign nations fail to understand precisely what was at stake in this civil war? Did they not see the noble ends that the Union was fighting for? At this early phase of the conflict, at least, neither the British nor the French seemed particularly impressed by the notion that the Union should be supported by default, as it had the stronger moral case. The civil war in Britain and in European minds was a cataclysmic event which brought no shortage of inconveniences, but there was no reason why opportunities that emerged from such a conflict should not be taken advantage of, where possible. Could these issues be eased by the proclamation of an emancipation of the slaves? Would this not serve to demonstrate to the world that the Union was on the side of right? Perhaps, but the pace of the American Civil War left little room for speculation or predictions in January 1862. Much work still had to be done if the Confederacy was to be brought to heel, and there was no guarantee that in the course of reuniting the states, another confrontation with the West would not follow. In the meantime, the war in America would continue, but the war was not fought in isolation. If the Trent Affair had proved anything, it was that at a moment's notice, the old world could be brought into conflict with the new, with dramatic consequences for all involved. 1862 was to be a year of increased turbulence in America's relations with the West, culminating, arguably, in Anglo-French efforts to mediate in the autumn of that year, followed by a reinvigorated French attempt to install the Habsburg on the Mexican throne in 1863. But these are stories for another time. 
On that note, my lovely history friends and patrons, I'm going to sign off and leave it there for now. This is the last episode of the Trent Affair series, and it's also the last episode of When Diplomacy Fails in 2021. So thank you all so much for supporting this show and for listening in during these episodes and all the other ones. I know from looking at your Spotify records that you've shown and shared with me that some of you listen to this show insane amounts. Some of you up to 11 and a half days was one that I saw. So yeah, I am very aware how much you guys appreciate the content I'm putting out. And it means so much to me that I get to nerd out with you guys about eras of history like these. And well, I don't know what else to say. It's just a lovely thing to be able to do. And I feel very blessed to be able to do it. And of course, I'm on the way to being Dr. Zack. And hopefully, all things being well, I will be by the summer of 2023. And now I will just say thanks again so much for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon in 2022. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.